Graham. Welcome to a classic big interview. Today, join me. We're going back to season 2015-2016. This is what I had to say about it back then. We start with the smell of aviation fuel in the morning. Goats on every veranda. Vodka hijacking. Gunplay. Then finding out who's playing and calling the run of play. This guest is David Proven, born and brought up in a very Rangers-supporting household, tapped up by the Celtic assistant manager pretending to be a journalist, asking him whether he would, because of his background, be willing to do it properly for Celtic every week. Scotland player. When Aberdeen were dominant in Scotland as I was growing up, there were very few players from the old firm that I looked at covetously and David Proven definitely was one. Davy Cooper, Bobby Russell, McCoist, but for sure David Proven, an extremely gifted and hardworking winger who was very evidently a brilliant crosser of the ball and really intelligent on the football pitch. Liked him then, like him now, you'll know him as Sky's just about principal co-commentator. Certainly in my view, the best, most acerbic, clever with his words, co-commentator in uh, British televised football at the moment. I think it's really remarkable and a testimony to his ability and his quality that a man who never played um, for a big English club has been gradually promoted through the ranks at Sky and is now doing the very biggest games in what is a multi-billion pound industry. Kudos to David. I hope you enjoy our chat. Uh, I certainly like listening to him. I find him a very forthright, bright, likeable man. A man who I've seen handling himself pretty well in a Barcelona karaoke bar. Again, kudos to David for that one. We finish talking about Willie Henderson and Jimmy Johnson. But at the end, his memories of playing against Vincente Del Bosque in Real Madrid captivate me, as they've always done, as he always does whenever he speaks. Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in the Hotel Duvan in Glasgow's leafy West End. Lovely, elegant place, Hotel Duvan. You maybe once knew it as One Devonshire Gardens. If you're going to Glasgow, stay there. Davey, thanks for all the memories. And thanks for being, I think, the single best co-commentator who's able to explain his art in this podcast. And um, a good football man. Listen on, people. Listen on. We've got to jalousing the teams, the Machiavellian art of getting the team on match day. And you're in the club and you talked about when you first went down, that match day was without a lot of contacts because your life had been spent mostly in Scotland. Yeah. That's probably changed. You're now face to Sky. You're important people. Sky fund a lot of the Premier League and, and presumably now from that point onwards as you've arrived and you maybe have or haven't got the teams, you're, you're beginning to prepare you're an hour, two, three away from kickoff. What's the schedule? What's the countdown? What's the minutiae of that? The, the great thing is that I will know what games I'm doing a month in advance. So given the, the wonder of Sky Plus now and Saturday Night Football and Sky Match Choice Football, yeah. where you, you can tape any game you want, yeah. I will whatever game I'm doing next Saturday, I will be taping this Saturday. Mm-hmm. So once you've seen the, the teams... Obviously, you do a bit of research in terms of injuries and how it might change, suspensions. But I will always have seen the teams that I'm about to, to do. Always will have watched their previous game and had a good look at them. Mm-hmm. 
I'll know who's injured, who's suspended, who's likely to come in. Mm-hmm. And if you can get a, an, an early steer on the team, mm-hmm. and most of the Sky commentators are well enough in with the managers mm-hmm. that they will get the teams early, then you're, you couldn't be better prepared by the time the, the game kicks so off. So what do you do? Sit down and think or chat or from the moment that you've got the teams to, to when you're sitting, for example, when do you need to be sat in the gantry? What's the, you know, the countdown to kick off? I, I usually go up early and then just watch the warm-ups because, um, yeah. you know, sometimes players get injured in the warm-up. Yeah. And that in itself is a, is a story. I'm usually in the gantry a minimum. Usually at the ground... I try and be there three hours before kickoff because there is work to do for Sky Sports News. Yes, there's always a, a cross, which the, means you on the pitch, yeah. with a microphone, yeah, and the Sky Sports News studio will hand to you and say, "What did he?" Yeah. Hand to a reporter, and we do a couple of minutes on the game to preview it. Yeah, usually on the gantry an hour before kickoff, watch the warm-ups. Can uh, you detect mood? Do you think sometimes it, if you've done a team several times over a couple of seasons, and you watch the warm-up, can you detect? Mood and touch and who's looking I, good. I think you know the mood in terms of the, the last few results. You know what kind of shape they're in mentally, you know, depending on the last few results. I think what fans mean is that if they're at a game early, they will watch the warm-up. Yeah. They're chatting, they're not chatting, he, yeah. he's not hitting the target. Does any of that matter much from your own experience? Not really sure. I mean, uh, I'm not sure you can take much from the body language in the warm-up. No. Okay. I think perhaps recently, unless there is a, a clearly unhappy dressing room, and Chelsea, I think, is a very good example of that mm-hmm. in, in recent times where I would argue that the body language of the players was pretty obvious that they, they weren't happy at their work. And I think we saw the, the contrast at, at Crystal Palace yesterday where a Chelsea team seemed to have the weight of the world off their shoulders and were expressive again and looked like Chelsea. Crisper, intense, they were yeah, at it. They, yeah. they loved their work again. Whereas previously, it didn't, didn't look, look right. It didn't look right. No. So then, off we go, and the match... Begins. Are you finding your rhythm? And does it matter who's beside you? Because each commentator is different. And there's no point in hiding the fact that you know. I would say the same to you and I did to Gary, but Martin Tyler, who I know and has told me great anecdotes, and and was at the the football tournament that erupted everything for me in 1982 in the World Cup, and yeah. told me enormous stories about working for ITV then, what that was like with Big Jack Charlton. But he's a superlative commentator. Yeah. And you've now begun to work with him as much as with Ian and with Alan Parry as well. How do you tailor what you do compared to who's next to you? I think you, you tailor it according to their style, if you like, their tempo. And they, they have different ways of doing it. I mean, Ian Crocker and I worked in Scottish football for years. You, it's almost like a husband and wife. I knew when he was going to stop talking. Ah, okay. I knew instinctively. And he would know instinctively when I was going to stop talking. Mm-hmm. I mean, the golden rule is a cocom. You know, when the ball's gone into the box, the cocom has to shut up. You don't talk over a, a possible goal. Yeah. Um, you, you've got to make sure the commentator's in charge if there's a chance of a goal. But basically, they all do it differently. They all do it, clearly, they all do it very well or they wouldn't be there. But they're all they're all different, and I think you're you not tapping the shoulder when one of them wants you to come in, or no. are you looking? Are you talking? Sometimes to... there's a bit of eye contact. Nah. Sometimes there's a bit of eye contact. But I, I just think you, you come to know when they're finished. If you like, you know, when a goal is scored, some commentators will wrap up pretty quickly and let you in. Some commentators are more expansive, and you just get to know through working with them when you come in. It's useful if it can become natural that when the goal is scored or an incident takes place, the commentator doesn't goes so far that he's actually taking away what you're preparing to say because then you're left kind of high and dry. I think most of the commentators are savvy enough to know. And generous enough. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, now and again, you'll crash each other. And that, I think, tends to happen when you haven't worked with a commentator. You find you're you're crashing each other. 
but over a period of time, it becomes like a, a relationship, you know. It feels uh, like a reasonable privilege to be working in that league for that company, earning a reasonable living, I presume, watching at elite grounds, huge turnouts, massive crowds, yeah. being at the heart of very big stories yeah. and, and following a narrative. Do you get a big thrill out of it? Does it give you the adrenaline? Do you have butterflies? Do you get adrenaline? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the bigger the game, the, the more... The tighter you'll be before a game. Um, I mean, the Arsenal Man City a couple of weeks ago is, is probably as big as it gets mm-hmm. at this stage of the season. You know, you, you don't want to be making a mistake in that. Put it that way. You're hoping that you call everything right. That, yeah. that you don't make an obvious mistake. You, you're hoping that you're calling it properly, calling it quickly, adding um, to it. Add, adding to it. Well, who stands out for you? What do you see? that you don't get to, you know, call in the matches. For example, we went to spend a fantastic morning doing this with Chris Waddle, and he immediately said to us when he began to talk about the Premier League, because it wouldn't be fair to you because Sky are such big backers of the Premier League that I, I have got doubts about some of the technical qualities that I think have dipped. In the time I've been away, I draw a comparison between the Schmeichel, Bergkamp, the Canio, Zola era that, that I left behind to maybe how much technical ability we see now and Chris was of that opinion too he the technique has dropped in the, I think so. the Premier League I think there are fewer players of absolute excellence like that you could name some of them but are there as many and, and I think the players who are very quick and run and are tall but are there enough who always know what to do with a ball without having done anything sparkling whose touch is two-footed who are aware of what to do with a ball and are mm-hmm. tactically intelligent so the manager can devolve intelligence to the pitch is there as much of that? No, I wouldn't say there is. But Chris was also of that view. He was worried about, particularly English footballers. But the guy he said he was enjoying a huge amount, this is some months ago now, was Mares. Yeah. And he'd spotted him in advance. He said, listen, he'll, he'll go to a big club soon. He's yeah. fantastic to watch. But you must see in the games that you cover little things that where you see maybe a player developing or emerging, somebody you like watching... What are the hidden corners of the quality that you see in the Premier League that you enjoy? Well, I think Mares is the obvious example. I mean, these guys, Igalo at, at Watford is, is another. And I think it's always refreshing to, to see a guy who hasn't cost a lot of money yeah. all of a sudden come into a very, very demanding league and become a star. A bit like Maravchik when he arrived at Celtic. Yeah, God, yeah. The difference between Maravchik and Mares is that Mares is 24. Yes. Lubo, I think, was 33 when he arrived in Scotland. There was, there was no real value for Celtic. Mares will go for a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I still think, I mean, I think the European results would suggest you're right and that perhaps the, the top players, mm-hmm. technically, mm-hmm. there are fewer of them now. European results would dictate that, I think. Yes. But the, the, there are still games you go to and, and you can go there knowing that even if the game is not that good, you will enjoy watching one or two individual players. Most football fans, whether they're sitting down to listen to you on Sky or, or paying to go to game, that's what they want. We all know you can't guarantee your team's going to win, but you want to be able to pick out three or four, like, tries like I would try, can play. Oh, he's on the rise. That's how you yeah. make it. If you can come away from any match with that experience, you're at least yeah. semi-satisfied, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I've gone to games at Man City and it's been a poor game, but yeah. I've watched David Silva for 90 minutes and I would never tire of watching David Silva. No, I, I don't honestly believe he's fully appreciated in England. Yeah, City is, but his gifts—I mean, his his movement, his gifts, his bravery—yeah, you know—but 
I'll take it here, I'll take it there. And Fabregas as well. I mean, he played a pass at Burnley at the beginning of last season. I don't know if you remember it. For Shirley to score at Turf Moor. It was Chelsea's opening game of the season. And he played a pass, first-time pass, through pass for Shirley. And he must have had eyes in the back of his head. And there are times where you look at that and it is genius. Mm-hmm. And you feel it applauding. You, know? you, you touched on a player that I know him um, reasonably well. And um, he's a thorn in my side because word reached me from Arsenal in the first two weeks I lived in Barcelona in 2002 um, Arsenal setting a Barcelona player and a pal of mine and I we racked our brains of course we didn't go down three levels to find a 15 year old and yeah. Steve Rowley had, and Francesc Cagigal their, their Spanish guy had spotted him so that bugged me right from the start but when you watch him play it confuses me how often people bad mouth him how rarely people think he should be in a starting lineup, how quick people are turning him. I've never really understood why. And he was one of the players that wasn't giving Jose Mourinho everything that he had in his locker. And I'm not saying deliberately, but his form under the difficult months for Jose Mourinho wasn't as good. But I saw him play for Spain against England during that run. Yeah. He completely ran that game. Yeah. And if Spain are going to win the European Championships again, which I think they have a fighting chance of doing, yeah. he should be starting next to Sergio Busquets in a two-man midfield behind a three and a one. And yeah. his gifts are, are fantastic, aren't they? When he's on form. Ah, it's fabulous. I mean, I think by his own high standards, he's been off it he a did. bit. One, you know, now and again, you, you see him hit a pass that nobody else has seen, nobody else would see. Mm-hmm. Quick-footed too, and I think his, his little touches. I mean, he, he played as a striker. Did he really? When Spain won the European right. Championship, right? You know, that this false nine. Yeah, false had. nine. Yeah, the yeah. could put him up there for Spain, and yeah. they won it, and he scored, and, they, and that's quite a remarkable footballer. I think that's unusual to be able to. Yeah. Play. I'm going to cheat now because you, you threw me a line. The remarkable passes and says Fabregas it was a dud pass compared to if I can take it back to Wembley, uh, 1981. <laughs> um, there's a bit of a, a melee around the Scotland box and there's a couple of hacks clear yeah. I don't know if maybe your boot was on one of the hacks clear and the ball comes to your feet in the centre of the Wembley but give me some context please for people who are either English and don't want to remember this or Scottish and didn't see it well when are we talking about and what's your background before that moment when the ball drops to your feet well it's Scotland England home internationals I had never seen Wembley far less played at Wembley and Jock Steen told me the night before the game I was playing, hardly slept that night, got to Wembley. And sometimes I think you can burn up too much energy and nerves. And that was a day where I felt tired from the, the first whistle. I was really struggling to get a second win. Normally you get a second win mm-hmm. in a game within 10 minutes. Really struggling. I spent the afternoon chasing Kenny Sansom, who was just motoring up and down. And I hadn't really taken part in the game mm. until that moment where I found myself midway inside the Scottish half on the right-hand side of the pitch. Joe Jordan came short for it, screaming for it, but I saw Steve Archibald making a long run. And that, that was, was my favourite pass, if you like, something with a little bit of bend into the channel in behind, I think it was Brian Robson. It was Brian Robson. It, it was. But I give people who haven't seen this, the things that come to my mind is, number one, the state of the pitch. I think I'm right in saying the Horse of the Year show had been on Wembley not you, long you've before. You've done me like a I was about to say it looked like Horse Guard Parade. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's oh, it was a heavy pitch, yeah. Tufts of turf. As yeah. if there's been a family of moles trying to come up and see That's the right. game for free or something. Yeah. So you, you, it's not the ideal passing surface. No, it, it's not. Anyway, 
I've, I've had a really poor afternoon and I've got one chance to redeem myself and, and find the right pass. And Distance of pass, do you think, maybe? I'm saying 30 metres. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe 30 metres, yeah. So it's a uh, big pass. To be fair, Joe Jordan, I think it might have been Alvin Martin he took short. Pulls him. Pulled him short and, and Stevie read the pass. Yeah. It was a bit like Costa's run for Fabregas. It was beautiful, yes. If yes, the yes. forward goes early, it makes it easier for the guy to see the pass. Before we talk about what happens next, what's the technique of that pass? I, I genuinely mean, given that you've always distributed the ball well, what is the technique? I think you, you just, I mean, the expression is you wrap the inside of your foot around it and just leave as much leather on the ball. If, if you're going to spin the ball, you've got to leave a bit of leather on it. Suppose you hit it like a draw shot in golf. When you hit that draw shot, are you once you've realised Steve's made turn, are you looking at him? Are you looking at the ball? Where are your eyes as you as you actually make contact? Oh, you you see the run. Obviously, I, I noticed that Stevie was on his bike, and it's a case of just trying to trying to give him something to run onto because Stevie was quick, and I, I know if I knock anything in behind, there's a chance he might go onto it. And if I may say so myself, the the weight was God. was right on the money. And, and Stevie was very clever, very That's, clever. Because whoa, 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 whoa. If there's any inference that that wasn't a penalty and Brian Robson didn't pull him down cruelly, then I reject well, it. S- Stevie put himself in a position where Brian Robson couldn't make a clean tackle. <laughs> no, he gets yeah. across the front he of him. He comes into him, yeah. Brilliantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the referee, who was Robert Wurtz, I think, I think he was French, described by Laurie McMenemy after the game as a flash Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Not that England were bitter about the penalty award. <laughs> Yeah, pointed to the spot, and, and we had Robbo, we had John Robertson, who, who just didn't miss on the big occasion. No, he didn't, did he? He was didn't a miss. hell of a footballer. Yeah. Given that that was your first Wembley experience, what about the periphery? What about the, you know, the goal moment when it goes in, the final whistle, the post-match? Just give us the privilege, because good as we are, well, you're, you're, that hasn't happened to us yet. It might in the future, but it's you're, you're, you're aware that it's a huge box that's ticked on your CV oh, God, to play... For Scotland at Wembley, first of all, and, and to play in a winning Scotland team at Wembley... To make a goal with a is, gorgeous pass. Is, uh, ...is obviously huge. And that was the year that Ted Croker, I think, tried to ban the Scotland fans from Wembley because there had been some trouble. 77, I think, the Scots took the goalposts up the road with them. And some of the pitch, I think. And some of the pitch. So the English FA, with some justification, tried to make sure tickets only went to the home fans. Were there any of us there? My God, we came out of the tunnel that day and it was, it was a sea of yellow with uh, line rampants. It was like a Scotland home game. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it was. There must have been 50,000, 60,000 Scots there. Mm-hmm. It was uh, amazing. You should have, um, not that I bear a grudge at all, but you should have spent more of your playing career supplying Steve Archibald. Because I believe that just about the point that Billy McNeil signed him for Aberdeen, you, in a fit of madness... Turned my glorious club down yeah. and didn't move from Kilmarnock to Aberdeen. Am I right about that? No, I, I could have signed for Aberdeen as a 16-year-old. I was playing for Port Glasgow Rovers and nobody had paid any attention to me as a, as a player. And all of a sudden, I've hit a very rich vein of form and I ended up with quite a few scouts in the house, one of whom was Bobby Calder. Oh, what a man. The famous Aberdeen oh. scout. Willie Fernie was here, the Kilmarnock manager. My dad, God bless him, said to me, look... Don't go full-time. I was very tempted to go to Aberdeen. I wanted to be a full-time footballer. I always had wanted to be mm-hmm. a professional. My dad said, go part-time with Kilmarnock. If you're good enough, you'll get your move. Mm-hmm. So I, w- I went to Kilmarnock and eventually, of course, went to Celtic after that. Mm-hmm. Billy McNeil did say that when he was at Aberdeen, he tried to buy me. But at that time, there was no freedom of contract. So no. 
you could you couldn't move. There was no transfer windows. There was no freedom of contract. The club could keep your registration. So even when your contract had expired, you couldn't move unless the club. You, you, you touched know, on a subject that it just by fluke, um, I, I was sent to John Matt Bosman's house. I'd said to my boss, "There's a story here," and I was sent there, and I ended up '95 in, in his parents' house where he'd moved. He sold all his belongings to pursue his fight against this and. The phone went and it was the judgment. I was in his house yeah. or his parents' house with him interviewing and the day the judgment came through, wow. which felt then as if somebody was looking after me because journalistically that was a big experience and a big story. We're celebrating the anniversary of that. It's probably the first time I've talked to somebody who's mentioned that they were affected by that. The system was criminally wrong, even if Kamarat didn't treat you as, as he was treated in yeah. Belgium. The system was just outrageously unfair. It was, it was. I mean, I think, uh, but for... The contractual situation in those, those days. It would have been a really good advantage for me to have had a profile in England before I started working as a commentator yes, in England. Yes, of course. And don't get me wrong, I have no regrets at all. I mean, I had a decade at Celtic, which were, were wonderful. There, there was a time where I could have gone to Arsenal and where Celtic just weren't prepared to let me go. Mm-hmm. You know, in hindsight, I, I wish I had tried English football at some stage. Maybe not necessarily at the time they try to get me, but certainly at some stage. Mm-hmm. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss at minimum it would have given you something to think about because you are a player of enormous ability I suppose if you're going down a historic club like Arsenal, you feel confident that you can do something. Whether you'd have chosen to leave Celtic or not, you didn't have that opportunity at all. No, I, I didn't. I mean, it was we were playing Aberdeen in a, a League Cup tie, a game in which Steve Archibald scored a hat-trick against Celtic. And Terry Neal was at the game. And I had one of those nights where everything went right for me. And got, got a phone call, was tapped by Arsenal. And I remember John Clark, who must have got wind of it, coming up to me in the training ground at Celtic and said, oh, there's a man from Northern Ireland been on to you and I'm pleading all innocence. I said, I don't know what you're talking about, John. And he gave me that knowing look and he said, look, he said, if we sold you now, the supporters would burn the stand down. He said, forget it, you're not going anywhere. How close was that to the time? Because did Terry not also sign Charlie? He did, yeah. He signed Charlie in, what, 83? 
Yes. That would, this would be 79. Oh, my word. This would be September, October 79. At a point when they'd just played a few months before in the cup final, I presume, and they lost three That's right. to Manchester United. They so, beat Man U, didn't they, Alan Sunderland? They beat Man yeah. Sunderland scored correct, thank yeah. you for, for Arsenal fans, I'm sorry. So they were a leading, leading club rather than just a historic yeah, club. Yeah, they were a big club. It's funny you're very good at this, David, which is the reason we invited you in the first place, because John Clark was going to come up. The media are terrible buggers. <laughs> They'll phone you up and tell you lies. Um, there's a publication, we have a lot of listeners outside Scotland, and nobody outside Scotland have ever heard of the Weekly News. But the Weekly News phone you up at Kilmarnock, I believe, yeah. which is one of the funniest stories I can imagine. Tell us what happened. That was the way that, that clubs tap players um, I was in my parents' home in Gourock. I'd just come home from training at Kilmarnock and the phone rang and I picked the phone up. This is uh, Joe Bloggs from the Weekly News here. I said, oh yeah, how you doing? I just wondering uh, how you're going on at Kilmarnock, what you think of the, the game coming up on Saturday, blah, blah, blah. And after a few minutes, uh, it's actually John Clark um, of Celtic here. And I'm not sure whether it's a wind-up or not. He said, it's John Clark of Celtic. He said, uh, we're aware of your background. We're aware that you're brought up in a Rangers household. You're a... Rangers supporter, we just want to know if we come in for you, whether you would sign for Celtic. And, and I said, well, absolutely, I would sign for Celtic. I'd love the opportunity to play for Celtic. And was, was very, very excited after that phone call. It, it took some time after that for the move to come off. Celtic offered commandant money, they wanted more. They just sold Jim Stewart, Gordon Smith, Ian McCulloch. They didn't need the money. They could demand top dollar and eventually Celtic stumped up. It's fascinating to me because it t- I never knew growing up that Kenny Douglas, he grew up in the shadow of Ibrox with Rangers posters on his wall, which yeah. he did. It took me a long time, having lived in Spain, to find that Iniesta, before he became a fanatic of Barcelona, was a big Madrid fan. Really? In this series of interviews, we had a lovely chat with Jamie Carragher, who <laughs> couldn't have been more diehard Everton and hated it. I still though. see him in the gantry at Goodison. And when Carragher's got a day off, he's up in the gantry at Goodison <laughs> beside us. Don't tell Rafa Benitez. <laughs> who still thinks that Jamie had Everton sympathies. And, and that whole process of saying, oh, same for you, let's not call him the enemy. But I've always wondered if it's difficult at all. No, nah, well, I, I had affections one way. I don't, I don't find it difficult at all. Did I mean, you then, though? I mean, not now, obviously, because you no, succeeded, you did everything you wanted pe- people to. People in the west of Scotland know your background. <laughs> it's they know your background true, inside out. There's yeah. no point in trying to hide it. Yeah. I mean, I, I played with some Celtic players who, who even to this day, wouldn't admit they supported Rangers as a kid. What's the point in trying to hide what you were as you were growing up. I don't get that. Because everybody around your neighbourhood People knows. know anyway. Aye. So... Look, one thing that did intrigue me that I told you before we started the tape that when I was with Harry Redknapp, I thought I was being self-indulgent, asked about John White because I wanted to know. And it turned out that people listened to it and a lovely story that I've not shared with the boys is that John White's sister and brother listened to that podcast on Christmas Day and were in tears listening to memories of their brother. Yeah. This means that you had the chance to watch Willie Henderson. Yeah. Can, can you... Share anything about having been a talented winger. Can you share anything? Because I didn't see him live. I'd like to understand because he's regarded as a great, but I f- kind of feel that compared to Jimmy Johnson, he's not talked about as much. I'd like to understand. He, a bit he was more. certainly a, a fabulous player. I mean, I, I would first see Willie Henderson playing for Rangers when my dad would take me to Ibrox. I'd be seven, eight, nine years old at that time. And he was the one I watched because I was a winger. The thing I always remember about Willie Henderson, when the ball was knocked to his feet, there was this huge expectant buzz would go round the ground and he was a fabulous player 
I think you could argue he was eclipsed by Jinky. Mm-hmm. Um, on ability? Or because Celtic had a better team? Or? I think Jinky, for me, edges it. I think he edges it. What did Willie do with the ball when he had it? He was just so direct. Oh, really? He, he was much more direct than Jinky. I mean, ah. Jinky would beat the fullback, then yeah. beat him again just for a laugh. Willie Henderson would get to the byline as, as quickly as he could. And the, the thing I remember about him was his, his bravery. He was a bit like Jinky himself. I mean, the, the stick these boys took was... Mm. Ridiculous. That's one thing, I, and there are, there are very few things you can praise FIFA for, but by taking some of the hatchet men out of the game, they've, they've done the game a great favour. We see players playing for longer, elite players with yeah. skill, with better careers. I think that's why it's difficult to compare Messi with Maradona. If you look at the treatment that Maradona took, 82 mm-hmm. World Cup's a great example. Mm-hmm. The, 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 you know, Gentile and... Italy and Argentina yeah. kicked hell out of him yeah. and, and it, reacted. And, it, and Messi... To that extent, it's very fortunate that he's playing in an age of protection that Maradona was, was never exposed to. No, I completely agree. I mean, we sat here in this chair with Charlie telling us that he reckons he was the first to invent shin pads on the back of his yeah. calf as well as on the front because of the booting he took. What sort of treatment did you take? Pretty brutal at times, to be honest with you. But you, you get to know the fullbacks are going to try and do you and the ones who are hard but fair. I mean, if I was playing against Morris Malpass... I would know that, I mean, he would clatter me if he got a chance, but he, he wouldn't try and do me. Mm-hmm. Dougie Rugby. It's just di- steady now, steady. Different ball game. Uh, we, he didn't we, have a bad bone in his body. He was occasionally you, clumsy. You knew that if Dougie got a chance, he would, he would hurt you, he would do you. Uh, and you, you get to know, you get, I mean, I, I don't hold that against the big guy, and I, I see Dougie now and again, and we have a laugh about it. They were just uh, the rules of engagement in those days. And it was part of the mentality that Alec, imbued Aberdeen with that in order to yeah. get parity with Rangers and say like if you yeah. left one in now and again then even the battle a little bit there was a difference in the character between Dundee United and Aberdeen I don't think there was much between the two sides in ability but there was a nastiness about the Aberdeen side which helped them dare I say no helped them and a lot of the great sides are nasty is that pushed out of our game too much in Britain now I think refereeing and you know the nature of the game has changed that Do you think the nature of the fan has changed I sometimes Lose my temper, which I'm a very placid guy. Particularly on social media where I hear, I see guys who are maybe 18, 19, 20, 25, that tackles a shock, it's a leg breaker. Yeah. And all that's happened is he's clipped a boot as he goes for the ball and there's a foul on it. And you're like, you've got no idea. Yeah. That could be somebody's career. And you're like, that's yeah. unbelievable. And that nastiness. Now, we, again, we sat in this series talking to Graham Soonis. He went further and he went, look, this is eternal. Yeah. Well, Why do you think that there was the Coliseum? We need to do each other in, in battle. Yeah. Now, I, I, you know, I'm not all for football carrying spears and shields. But I think we've lost an edge that is vital to football. There was one yesterday, Damien Delaney uh, came through uh, Diego Costa on the halfway line. Mm. He got a booking for it, Damien Delaney. He was booked for it. And was, nowadays, you think yellow card automatically. In my day, he'd have been allowed three or four of them yeah. before the referee would even have a word with him. Yeah. So I think the game is better for that. And I'm fed up hearing... Dewey-eyed tales of Ron Harris and Norman Hunter. No, you, but now you're talking about people who go out to do damage, yeah, which is different. Yeah, and they, these guys wouldn't last two minutes now because... Couldn't play. Couldn't play. Or couldn't play particularly well. They could kick people. In those days, kicking people had a value, but not now. I, wanna, I think it would be wrong of me to close without two or three. One would be that you'd have had 
four, five, six years more of, of a high-level career had it not been for ME, which mm. I think at the time, we once sat and chatted about this for an interview, which you were really gracious and kind to give me when I was a young reporter. But it, it must give you some pleasure, at least, that we're clearer about it now, that not just in football, but in society, people understand it, because you were kind of isolated and alone at that time without information about what was ailing you. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of a mystery before it was um, diagnosed. I, I think the one thing... The one element about it where I was fortunate is that nobody thought I was malingering. A professional footballer doesn't give up the best job in the world unless there is something wrong with him. At the peak of his career. There are people with ME who people suspect are swinging the lead because they don't have a plaster cast in their arm, they don't have a bandage on their head, and they don't get the benefit of the doubt. And and one of the hardest parts for anyone suffering for ME is being believed and getting support. Mm -hmm. And if you know that people are doubting your illness... I think it, it adds to the pressure of of how you're going to recuperate and how you're perceived. I think there's still a, an element within the medical profession who are pretty cynical about it, who still don't believe it's an organic I'm illness. I'm really surprised about that. Well, so am I. They believe it's a psychological problem. I can say with complete certainty, having given up a, a career at 29, yeah. it is an organic illness. It's a very serious illness. The guy who dubbed it the yuppie flu has a lot to answer for. I think he trivialised it. Mm-hmm. It's still ruining lives. It's ruining young lives. And I hope I live long enough to see them find some kind of cure for it. Mm-hmm. Did it leave you with an extra drive to do well in what came later? Did it, in some small way, gifted you the need to, to keep working and do this job that gives you a lot of satisfaction? I, I don't want to be dewy-eyed about that at all because I'd rather you had I think six, it, seven years more. Ironically enough, I think Emmy helped me get into the media. I, I got into the media early. My plan was to, to go to Australia Eventually, I had played in, in Sydney in 1985. Yeah. Tommy Doherty got me fixed up there. I'd been out for most of the season with a hamstring injury. Got to the end of the season, and I was just getting up to speed when the season finished. And I went to David Hay, and I said, look, I want to go to Australia and play the Australian season. I had relatives out there in, in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And David said, well, I'll phone Tommy Dock, because he managed Sydney Olympic. Tommy Dock, God bless him, got me fixed up in Sydney Olympic. Really good deal. Went out there, played, did them a, a, a really good turn. And the owner of the club, Jim Pettinellis, said, look, when you're finished in a few years' time, you come out here. Wind your career down. You can coach the club. You can manage the club. And that, at that time was my long-term plan, to go back out to Australia with my now wife and start a new life. ME changed all that, knocked it sideways. And through ME, I got the chance to go into the media because although physically I was very poor... I could still speak, mm-hmm. had a reasonable grasp of the language. And through that, Paul Cooney at Radio Clyde gave me the chance to go into broadcasting at, at Clyde and everything else kicked off from there. Well, the evidence of us having asked you to come and share your time with us generously today says that, in our view, that's been a massive success. And I want to close, if we've got five minutes to close, which I think we do, we're going to close on an up for both of us because writing books is just a pain in the butt. It's long <laughs> and it's slow. And you phone somebody up and they give you a wonderful story And it lifts you and you say, right, I'm going to finish this chapter and I might make it through to the next one. I did that with you one day. And it allows us to talk about one of your great games. And the phone call was about, I remembered that you must have played against the current Spain manager, Vincente Del Bosque. Yeah, I did, yeah. When Celtic were in the European Cup, they drew Real Madrid, they were epics. I think he's probably, in my opinion, going to coach Spain to the title again this summer for three in a row. And he says he's going to retire. And I wouldn't mind marking the end of this just by going back and saying that 
you were champions of Scotland, you drew Real Madrid, and with a particular focus on Del Bosque and what Billy told you about him and what you thought of him, but also that first leg in Glasgow. Tell us your memories of that. Tell us some stories about that, Ty. I still remember where I was when I had the draw for the first time. That, that's how big it was. It was big. I was driving over the bridge at Glasgow Airport, over the river cart. It's one of the cart. I don't know whether it's what colour of cart it is, but it's the river cart. And I can still hear Richard Park saying we have the European Cup draw and Celtic will play Real Madrid. You know, I was part-time with Kilmarnock probably a year previously and the thought of playing against Real Madrid was, was mind-blowing. And I think it was a 67,000 sellout. I think the Celtic safety certificate would only allow 67,000, although I think there might have been a few more <laughs> somehow in the ground that night. And I remember they, they played in all blue which didn't go down with a Celtic crowd. And for the first 15 minutes of the game, I don't think we saw the ball. Peary, Laurie Cunningham in his pomp at that time. And I remember Del Bosque getting the ball at one stage in the game. And we were swarming all over them like wasps. I mean, you, they talk about the high press now. We knew how to high press. And Del Bosque got the ball in, in midfield and he, he walked with the ball. He, he found this little pocket of space and he literally walked five or six yards with the ball and it was almost a message as if to say you will not knock us out of stride a message to his team as well mm-hmm. look we can just play at our tempo never forget that if I remember correctly Billy talked to you about the Madrid team and picked double skirt and said look look fast yeah. yeah he said he, he can run he, he said <laughs> which, was, which was true which was true he said but he's Van Hannigan Baxter oh. type any range of passing Sure, he almost chipped Peter Latchford in the second leg in the Bernabeu. Yeah, yeah. He almost chipped him from about 40 yards. Very early on in the game, my yep. memory's right. Big Peter got back to get his hand just under the bar and get it over. Yeah. But, uh, you know, to, to beat Real Madrid that night, I mean, that, that's... Which you did, 2-0. Beat him 2-0. I think we only had a couple of chances all night and, and took them. And we, we go to the Bernabeu and I, I could never prove anything, but I, I think the referee must have had a, a villa in the Costa Blanca after that game. Listen, I'm an Aberdeen fan. I don't carry a green and white supporting card. And I watched it, and, and there were strange decisions yeah. at, at a time when Madrid and big clubs like that could, could certainly influence people. We were almost at half-time in that game. We were, we were nil-nil. We were on the back foot, but we had, they hadn't had a clean chance the whole game. And he gave a free kick for Peter Laxford overcarrying, which was very unusual. You know, there was that six step, steps? Six, six steps. Step. He reckoned Peter Lasford had taken seven steps. I mean, an utter nonsense to give that. So they've got a free kick inside our box. We managed to get it clear. They got a corner. Cunningham had a beautiful corner over. Carlos Santayana took Peter Lasford right out of the game and into the back of the net. And the referee gives it. And there's 120,000 at the ground. And you can imagine how that changes the complexion of the game. They've scored right on half-time. Yeah. I'm not saying we were a better side than them. They were a better side than us. But if we win 0-0, it's a different game. And they still only squeezed through, if I remember correctly. I mean, it's 3-2 in the end, but... I think Bonito scored the third. He did, did yeah, He's yeah. no longer with us. No, died in a car crash. Sadly, Laurie's Laurie away. Cunningham as well. I know, I mean... Well, if you think about it, Johnny Doyle. Yeah, no, I... Laurie Cunningham, Juanito. Tom. Yeah. Tommy, who was, who was a yeah, great Tom. man and, and inspired a lot of affection in me. It's... I don't know, we're, we're doing this very near to the start of 2016, so maybe that gives us an excuse to say that... We do these kind of things. We talk about these kind of things for those who've gone, those who are listening to the big interview who didn't know any of this before. Yeah. And it's our dearest wish that some of those who listen to your excellence in Sky go, 
oh, a player, eh? Hey? No. <laughs> and we applied the same logic to Charlie too. And I think it's not nostalgia. I think it's just putting people in the right yeah, place. Yeah, I think we all forget that. I mean, uh, we, we forget. I can, I can walk up to Celtic Park now and, and nobody will recognise me. Or only the older guys, if you know what I mean. Like me. You'd have to be of a certain vintage to recognise me. a bit shocked. And we, we, we tend to forget that, our, you know, there's a generation growing up who don't really know us. That's it. As footballers, they, they only know us as pundits and commentators and whatnot. And we, we tend to forget that. I'd like to, part of the reason for this series... It's just paint some of the blank spaces so that yeah. people, if they're curious, not everybody will be curious, but they'll maybe go back and look. And increasingly you can look on YouTube or you can read, and the internet's a great gift for that. And uh, we are where we are today because of footballers like you. And um, as I expected it to be, a massive pleasure. Really oh, my pleasure as well, Graham. Great to see you. Again. Thank you very much indeed.